Let's get our Bibles open to Luke chapter 9, and we are continuing this series based on the question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And everything that Luke is writing in his gospel is his attempt to answer that question. He's actually writing a real letter to a real person named Theo, and he's introducing him to Jesus. And So every time we open our Bibles to the gospel of Luke, we're being introduced to Jesus, and whether this is the first time you've been introduced to him or whether you're getting reintroduced to him, every time we look into the scripture, it is an opportunity for God to open our eyes and open our ears to hear and confirm the answer to this question, who do you say that I am? Now, the last time we were together, we saw that Jesus literally asked that question of his disciples. One of the disciples spoke up, Peter, gave the answer. He said, you are the Christ of God. And that's the correct answer. Good job, Peter. And then Jesus went on to explain the implications of knowing the answer to the question. If you know who Jesus is, you're going to become a follower as a disciple. And the disciples have these distinguishing characteristics. They continually deny themselves, take up their cross, and they follow Jesus. And so they daily die to self. They daily deny themselves of the pleasures of this world, and they follow Follow Jesus. What direction are you going today, Jesus? I'm going that way. I trust that's the way you lived your life in the last week. Now, Jesus is now going to reveal a side of himself that Peter knew nothing about. He knew one side of Jesus. He didn't know the other side. And we're going to see that as well as we dive into it. Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. Jesus is speaking. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to his 12 disciples. And he says, some of you disciples, not all of you disciples, but some, we're going to find out later, it's 25% of the disciples are going to get to see the kingdom of God before they die. Now, we would read that statement and kind of scratch our heads. Theologians kind of have different interpretations of it. What is he talking about? The first thing that we would race to if we saw that is we would think, well, that must be talking about when Jesus is coming back in his glorious appearance, when he brings the kingdom of heaven to the kingdoms of the earth, the kingdoms of earth become the kingdoms of our God. Is he talking about the second coming of Jesus? No, he is not. We find out what he's talking about because the story continues. It says in verse 28, now eight days later after these sayings, and so he connects the things that we just read to the things that we're about to read. He says he took with him Peter, John, and James. How many disciples? Three disciples. Some of the disciples? Yes. And so he takes some of the disciples and went up on a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Now, the Gospel of Matthew uses a different word. It it says his face was transfigured. It says his face shone like the sun. Not because the sun was shining on it, like some of you that got sunburned on the 4th of July, but the sun was shining from it. 
It was coming from the inside out, not a reflection of something coming from the outside in. Jesus' face was altered. It was transfigured. Same word, the Greek word there is metamorpho, the word that we get metamorphosis from. It was completely changed. Peter had never seen anything like this in Jesus. Jesus was transfigured in front of him. Then it says, his clothing became dazzling white. And so there was like a fireworks show going on around Jesus. And we, we look at this and we're like, I don't know what to make of all that. I don't, I mean, can you just let your mind imagine if you were there on the mountain with Peter, John, and James, what you would actually be seeing. Jesus was revealing something about himself that had not yet been known, namely his glory. We're going to talk about that word. And I want you to hear something this morning. Jesus has the same desire to reveal his glory to every disciple in this room that he had to reveal his glory to Peter, James, and John. Every time we meet together in worship, it is an opportunity to climb the mountain to see the glory of God. And by the way, you don't even have to gather together to do it. Every time you open your Bible, every time you approach Jesus personally in prayer, it is an opportunity to see the glory of Jesus. And listen, until you see the glory of Jesus, you don't really know him as he is. So, this is the term that theologians, theologians call the transfiguration. If you want to impress your friends this week, use the word transfiguration in conversation, okay? So, let's define what we're talking about here so we can dive into it here. The transfiguration of Christ was a gracious self-disclosure of the glorious nature of God embodied in Jesus, Now, every word of that definition is very important. Let's break it down a little bit. First of all, understand, this was a gracious event. It was a gracious, intentional act of God. Not only to send Jesus as God, from God, to reconcile us to God, Jesus not only appeared in his humanity, but in this instant, he revealed his glory, his deity. And it was a gracious act. You know why it was so gracious? Because none of the disciples deserved this. None of us deserved this. We had all turned our backs on the glory of God. We had fallen short of the glory of God. We had assigned glory to lesser things and been more interested in glorious things that are not so glorious. And yet God in his love and his kindness and his mercy and his grace came to where we are as disciples. And do you know what he did? He unzipped his humanity and revealed his deity. It was a gracious act. And notice, it was self-disclosure. Nobody made God do this. And understand this, truth about God is not discovered. Humans think that somehow we just sit around, we need to sit around and imagine what God is really like, and maybe, maybe we'll figure it out. Truth about God is not discovered. 
truth about God is graciously revealed. It's an intentional act of God. He speaks. He opens our eyes. He opens our ears so that we can understand what God is like. We have a God who wants to be known. We have a God who wants to be loved and treasured and valued and glorified. And so God comes to us, and that's what Jesus was doing with these disciples. He took them up the mountain. He graciously gave them a preview of coming attractions, what he was going to be like in all of his glory one day when he would come again. It was God disclosing himself. Now, by the way, You don't need any new revelation from God. There is no new revelation from God. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. All we need to do is open our eyes to see the truth that has already been disclosed for us in Scripture and through the Spirit respond to it in worship. So it's a glorious It's a gracious self-disclosure of the glorious nature of God. So what did Jesus show them? Jesus was showing them his pre-existent glory. The glory that Jesus had, he had had from all of eternity past. And so what Jesus did when he came to earth was he embodied himself in a human body, zipped himself up in a human body, and on this mountain he unzipped and showed them his glorious pre-existent nature, and he was also showing them his glorious future nature that we would all experience when he comes again in his glory. This is a mind-blowing experience. I love this section of scripture because we're going to find out it actually packages the whole Bible from the first page to the last page, all in this one paragraph. It is a self-disclosure of the glorious nature of God embodied in Jesus Christ so that we respond in worship. Now, you may look at all that as like, ah, I didn't get up the mountain. I'm like the other nine disciples. I wasn't one of the chosen ones. How many of you, when they did Red Rover, you never got chosen? You were always not, you were just like, yeah, well, I guess you have to go to that team over there. Now listen, there were nine disciples that didn't go up the mountain, okay? He only chose these three. And so you and I need to understand that we still have the opportunity to see his glory. This is what the transfiguration is for. There's a purpose for this, and I want you to see it. Jesus transfigured himself for the purpose of transforming me into a disciple. Until you experience the glory of Jesus, you'll just see him as a man. Good teacher, miracle worker, ancient prophet, lived so long ago, I'm not even quite sure we can understand him. But a true disciple is one that sees him and knows him as glorious. Do you know his glory? Have you had an encounter with his glory? Do you have an encounter with his glory every single day? That's what true disciples go after every day of their lives. And there's a pattern here in the story that I want you to see. I call it the cycle of a disciple, the disciple cycle. Here's what it looks like. Here's what happens. God gives revelation And that motivates me to worship, and that worship sends me on mission, and that mission drives me back 
to more revelation from God. And that revelation inspires my worship, which motivates my mission, which sends me back to see more revelation of God. This is a cycle that continues throughout the the life of a disciple. This should be happening every day if you're a true disciple of Jesus. God supplies the revelation. He discloses who he is and what he's doing. You respond in ascribing glory to him. Do you see it? The two directions of glory. God sends glory down in Jesus, and then we send glory back up to ascribe glory to him. And then he sends us out to be involved in the glorious mission that he is on in the world. This is the life of a true disciple. The more revelation you have, the more you want. The more worship you experience, the more worship you want to give. And the more you're involved in the mission, the more more you want to go and see that great commission fulfilled. So this is going to be the outline of the sermon today. First of all, let's start with revelation. First of all, a true disciple speaks like this. I need continual encounters with the glory of Christ. And just as Peter, John, and James experienced that glory, you and I as disciples need this continual glory this continual encounter with the glory of Christ. Notice here in verse 28, it says um, that uh, they went up the mountain to pray. Notice the intentionality involved. When was the last time you climbed a mountain? Did you notice there's a little uh, intentionality involved? It takes a little preparation. Um, did it require some effort and some planning to even get here today? This is like the mountain. If you have children, you know it took some effort and some planning and some coaching and some feeding, and some of you still haven't made it. You tried to make the 9.30 service, but you just made it to the 11.30. Sorry, we have a 9 o'clock. Yeah, I, I don't even know what time we meet. Anyway, you made it here today. You cl- you're attempting to climb the mountain in here. At the invitation of Jesus, you've come and you are longing for an encounter with Christ. Everything about this worship service is designed to, for us to see the glory of Christ and ascribe glory back to him. And so it's, it's as if we're climbing this mountain. Verse 29 says that his face was altered and it, it uses this strange language. His clothing became dazzling white. When's the last time you used the word dazzling in a conversation? Um, I, I think when you try to describe the glory of Jesus, pretty quickly you're, you're exhausting the limits of your vocabulary and you start picking words like dazzling and brilliant and majestic and, and all kinds of different things. Um, Andrea and I have noticed that there is a phenomenon taking place in our culture among two different demographics of women. First of all, pre-adolescent girls and elderly senior citizen women. The same phenomena is happening in these two groups of women. Do you know what I'm talking about? Bedazzle. Do you know what what it means to bedazzle something? Have you you seen these sequins and these buttons and the glitter that they put on everything? It's happening in these two. And my wife says, you know, these these elderly women, it's it's like, I I just think she feels like she's lost her sparkle. And so she has to put as much sparkle on as she can, you know? And so, listen, so we bedazzle things. And you know, the reality is the human heart tries to bedazzle everything but Jesus. We, we try to make things sparkle that don't have as much glory as Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't need to be bedazzled. There are churches that try to bedazzle Jesus and like try to make him appear more appealing to people and make him sparkle and shine and and try to get you to be attracted to him. The, The word glory is a very interesting word. We see it here. Jesus is revealing his glory here. The word glory actually means to be weighty. It's like the gravitational pull that the earth has on our bodies. We are being drawn to this large mass that is earth. Jesus has a weightiness to him. Jesus has a gravity to him. But the problem is, if you fail to see how glorious he is, if you fail to understand how weighty the implications of his life are, you will not be drawn to him. You will be drawn to things that you bedazzle that are less glorious. Have you in had, when was the last time you had an encounter with the glory of Christ? If you are a disciple, that should not be more than about 24 hours away because every day we stop, we pause, we go up the mountain and we meet with Jesus in prayer. We open our Bibles, we read about his glorious nature and then we respond in worship. So what is so glorious about Jesus? If, if there's some intellectually honest people here, you're probably saying, I haven't really found Jesus to be all that weighty? I haven't found him to be all that glorious. Well, well c- could I just try here for the next few minutes to introduce you to the glorious nature of Jesus? Ten attributes that are glorious about Jesus. First of all, would you consider the glory of Christ eternality? Let your mind explode with the fact that he never had a beginning and he will never have an end. Jesus is the great uncaused cause of all things. Jesus is not dependent upon anything for his existence. And yet, everything in existence is dependent upon Jesus for its existence. Everything that exists is dependent upon him. Jesus has always been the same in his eternality. Jesus is not getting better. He's not growing stronger. He's not improving in any way because he has an eternal perfection that has always been. And Jesus is made in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were made, and before him was nothing. And he holds all things together by the glory of his eternality. Secondly, the glory of his power, the fact that he walked on water, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he calmed the storm. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're told he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds all things in the universe by the word of his power. If Jesus were to stop 
holding all things together, the planets would spin out of control. Your life would spin out of control. Every cell in your body would disintegrate immediately if Jesus just simply stopped holding it together. The glory of his power. Or how about the glory of his humility, almost juxtaposed to his power. The fact that through that though he was in the form of God, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself gloriously and became obedient to the point of death, even a glorious death on a glorious cross. The glory of his humility, the glory of his wisdom, Think about the fact that Jesus has never been perplexed. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to Jesus? Jesus' mind is filled with more information than Siri, Alexa, and Google. What Jesus knows is more than every word that has ever been recorded in ink on paper in every book in human existence. Jesus has never needed counsel. He's never been confused. He knows how to fix your problem without stress. That's the glory of his wisdom. How about the glory of his authority? That Jesus has authority over every demon, every man, every dictator, every woman, and not one demon, not one man or woman moves one inch without the permission of Jesus. The glory of his authority. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has complete authority over heaven. He has complete authority over earth. He has complete authority over hell. The glory of his authority. How about the glory of his holiness? He is completely unstained, unpolluted, uncontaminated by the evil in this world. He's never had an evil thought. He's never had a bad attitude on any given day. He knew in his humanity how to enjoy a complete buffet feast. Have you noticed the number of times in Luke Jesus records Jesus being at a dinner party? And just just food everywhere. And yet because Jesus is holy, he can enjoy an all-you-can-eat buffet and yet never sin. How'd you do the last time you were at an all-you-can-eat buffet? (laughs) Jesus could enjoy a feast and yet know when the next bite would be sin, and he never bit it. That's the glory of his holiness. He never disobeyed. He never stepped outside of his holiness. And the glory of his grace, which justifies the ungodly as a gift by treating us as righteous, even though we are unrighteous, because on the cross, he allowed himself to be treated as unrighteous, even though he was righteous. That's the glory of his grace. And the glory of his justice, which will render all moral accounts settled, either on the cross or one day in hell. The glory of his justice and the glory of his patience to put up with my slow sanctification. 
When is he ever going to get his act together? He's never been frustrated by how slow my progress is or yours. That's the glory of his patience as day by day he transforms me into the likeness of his image. And then finally, the glory of his love. The fact that he does all of this to demonstrate his love that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. True disciples live for the glory of Jesus. True disciples make money, spend money, give money for the glory of Jesus Christ. True disciples go to work for the glory of Christ. True disciples go to school for the glory of Christ. True disciples live and move and have their being and die for the glory of Christ. You can't do that if you only know Jesus as a good teacher and a miracle worker. That's why you gotta get up the mountain. You gotta see him as glorious. It is a gracious self-disclosure of the divine nature, the glorious nature of God embodied in Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Who do you say he is? Do you say he's glorious? There's an interesting little episode here on the mountain. Not only do the three disciples make it up the mountain, but notice verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him. Who? Peter, James, John? No, look who shows up. Moses and Elijah. I thought they were dead. They did. They died a long time ago. But somehow in their glorified bodies, they show up to meet the glorified Jesus there on the mountaintop. And it says they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Interesting word there, departure. It's actually the same word for the exodus. Interesting. It's a hyperlink back to the Old Testament, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I'm going to invite my son, Zach, to come up here with me. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And uh, Zach um, has been away at college and he's come home. He's been my intern, my pastoral intern this summer. And he's about to enter into his senior year at Cedarville University. He's been studying to get his Master's of Divinity degree, which means he's been studying his Bible. And one of the things he's been doing, he has been going with Aaron Jones over to Waterford at uh, Edison Lakes. It's a retirement facility. And every week they, they preach and they gather together 12, 15 senior citizens that can't really get out of there anymore and they have church. And so last week, Zach actually preached there. They've been going through the gospel of Mark which includes this story on the transfiguration. So Zach and I were comparing notes this week about the transfiguration. He told me some stuff I didn't know, so I told him he's got to tell you some stuff you don't know. Go. Thanks. So when you're studying the transfiguration, especially if you're going to present it to a lot of people, you're kind of perplexed by some of the questions you might have, especially the one about Moses and Elijah and why they showed up. So I think there's two reasons for this specifically. So the first one is that, do you remember just last week, right before Peter confessed Jesus as Christ, he asked the disciples, you know, who do the crowds say that I am? And the crowds had two different answers. Um, some of them would say, uh, you're, you're Elijah, you're a great prophet. Or some would say, maybe you're a different prophet of old. And um, that could have been Moses, possibly. but. 
when Moses and Elijah show up next to Jesus, it's pretty clear that they're not Jesus if there's three different bodies there and they're different people. So I think that's one of the reasons. And then secondly, Moses represents the law, the first five books of the Bible. Um, he wrote those books, and in them he talks about um, Jesus, somebody who would come and um, save the people from their problem of sin. And then Elijah, he's one of the greatest prophets um, that's ever been written about, and he represents all the prophets and all the writings in the prophets there. And those books also contain, contain information about Jesus who would come and save um, the people from their problem of sin. And so those guys are saying, we didn't just write about ourselves. We wrote so that you guys would know about Jesus. They wanted you guys to see, and they wanted us to see how Jesus and his glory is in those chapters. In one specific chapter, even in Exodus 33, um, Moses asks God, can I please see your glory? He says, can I please see your glory? And God says that he, he can, but he only shows him a small part of it. He hides Moses um, behind a cleft of a rock and he shows Moses his back, um, a small piece of his back. So he's got to see part of it, but it's not until right now that Jesus shows Moses all of his glory. So I think those are some reasons. Yeah, so the prayer was ultimately answered on the mountaintop when that prayer was ultimately answered and the, the, two, the two guys that show up are, are saying, who, do you, who does Moses think Jesus is? He's God. Who's Elijah think he is? God. Up until this point, these guys that have been reading the, the writings of Moses and, and the stories of Elijah, they're like, should we listen to Jesus? And definitely. Yes, we've showed up to let you know that's the guy you should worship. Thanks. So, we, did you want to clap for him? I will let you clap for him. Yes. Such a fine young man. You say, okay, all I need to be a disciple of Jesus is to find a mountain, Moses, Elijah, and the unveiled Jesus. All right, well, good luck. You're not going to find that, all right? So you say, well, I need, I need a little help. If, you've, if you're a person that like is a skeptic and it's like, I just don't know if I can believe all these stories, but if, I, if Jesus would show up in my bedroom and like shine his face real bright, I, that, that would help. Anybody agree that would help you? All right, well, listen, to understand this, you're probably, you're, we are like the other nine disciples, okay? Jesus only showed this to the three disciples, but he required the same discipleship from all 12. We aren't going to get to see it until he comes again in his power and glory. Notice what the rest of the New Testament says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will... Uh, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. One day we're going to see him as he is, just like Peter, James, and John did on the mountain. And notice this, it says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but 
I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You don't fully know him, but he fully knows you. And one day you're fully going to know him when he comes in power and glory. This story is a preview of coming attractions. This is a sneak peek. This is a teaser to what the second coming is going to be like. You say, but I really need like this, this spiritual, mystical, existential experience like Peter. If I could have the information Peter had, I would have an easier time believing. You know what Peter would tell you? No, you don't. You know why I can say that authority, authoritatively? Is because Peter wrote a commentary about what happened on the mountain. In, in the Bible, P- Peter wrote two books, Second Peter, Peter said this about this experience. He said, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. But notice he says this, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Do you know what Peter is saying? Man, it was awesome. But you know, it was just kind of for a moment and there was just like three of us there and we know you weren't there, but you've got something we don't. What did he say it was? The prophetic word of God. Something that is more fully confirmed than your bad dream about a 40-foot Jesus that showed up in your living room after you ate bad pizza. That, you don't need that kind of experience. The glory of God is revealed every time you open your Bible and read and wrap your mind around the nature of who he is. He said, this is a lamp shining in a dark place until... We get to the day when the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Yes, we're going to have that experience. But until then, we've got all we need right here. It's a lamp shining in the darkness. So when you open your Bible, when's the last time you opened your Bible? If you're a disciple, it was probably less than 24 hours ago. Because you need a continual encounter with the glory of Christ. And we come to church and we ascend the mountain and we see the glory. That is what God does in revelation. Here's the second thing. When we receive the revelation, now we've got to respond intentionally, purposefully, in worship. And his true disciple says this, I will be transformed into a disciple of Jesus to the degree that I behold the glory of Jesus. Anybody here need to change? Anybody here need to transform? Let me ask it differently. Anybody here your spouse needs to change? Anybody here, you need a transformed spouse, transformed child. How does that happen? It doesn't happen with getting beat over the head with a Bible. It doesn't doesn't happen by being threatened to go to hell. You know how you're transformed into a disciple? You encounter the glory of Christ. And he transforms you as you behold his transfiguration. You are changed as you see him changed in the transfiguration. Notice here in 
verse 32. It says, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy in sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, now now notice the sequence here. Moses and Elijah were leaving. As they were leaving, Peter said, wait, master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wanted to set up a KOA. He wanted to have s'mores with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. It's so good. Oh, we just love being up here in the mountain and there's no problems up here and Jesus is just shining so bright and we know what it's like down there at the bottom of the mountain, all those people down there. It's a mess down there. I mean, it smells like fish. I mean, it's so nice up here on top of the mountain. Some of you are like that. You want to stay on top of the mountain. You just kind of want to breathe the air that's so rare that nobody else can obtain. But notice that was not the plan that God had for Peter. Look at verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Isn't it interesting? Peter said in verse 33, Master, it's good that we are here. I trust that you say that when you come to church. It is so good to be in the presence of Jesus where his glory is known and on display. And yet, there's another phrase I hope you say from time to time when you're in the presence of Jesus. We are afraid You see, worship takes place in the tension between the nearness and the goodness of God and the fear of God. Worship involves an intimacy with Jesus where he draws me and I feel safe and the place where I realize he is so much more glorious than I am. I am not glorious. What is he going to do to me? And understanding that in his grace and in his holiness, that's where we respond to Jesus. Some people try to erase his holiness and just talk about his grace so that we'll feel safe in his presence. And other people, they're not real fond of grace. They just want to scare you to death and try to threaten you with the holiness of God. You better shape up and live right. It is responding to the holiness and the grace that produces a genuine worshiper. And in the fear of God and in the nearness of God, I'm transformed into a worshiper of God. He says in verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud. This is my son. That is not an insignificant statement. Do you know what he was saying? The first person of the Trinity spoke about the second person of the Trinity and said, he is my son. In other words, he has the same nature. He has the same authority. He is the same God. And then he says, listen to him. He speaks truth. Don't ignore how he is telling you to live. Don't ignore what he is revealing to you about the will and the ways of God. 
A disciple tunes his ear to listen to the voice of Jesus, which speaks authoritatively over every other voice in the culture. And so it doesn't matter how unpopular his voice is, a true disciple listens to him. We don't make stuff up. We just listen to what he's saying. And as a response, we worship, we glorify him, and then we get the word out and encourage others. You need to listen to him. This is God's son. His word is authoritative, and we're responsible for how we listen. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. I love that word alone. Do you remember Elijah, Moses? They were trying to leave. They were trying to get out of the way. Peter's like, ah, oh, wait, I got a tent for you. I got a tent for you. I got a tent for you. Everybody gets a tent, right? And, and it's interesting. Luke says he didn't know what he was saying. He has no idea what he's talking about. You can't say that Moses and Elijah are equal to Jesus. Jesus is in a completely different category. He stands alone. You know what he's saying? Salvation is not found in obeying the law of Moses. Salvation is not found in the urgency of the prophets to repent. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He was found alone. And it's in worshiping him alone that we are transformed. The Apostle Paul commented and said this, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, look at the verse. Does this tell us that the glory of God is only for a few disciples on a mountain in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? Or does this verse tell us that it's for all, we, all disciples of Christ with unveiled face are beholding the glory of Jesus. Until you behold the glory of Jesus, you don't really know how to answer the question, who do you say that I am? And then once you behold his glory, you know what happens? You start becoming like his glory you start being transformed into the same glorious image that is Christ, little by little, from one degree of glory to the next. The degree of glory that I have today is a greater degree of glory than I had yesterday. The degree of glory I had this year is a greater degree of glory than I had last year. Is that true of you? This is the nature of true discipleship, revelation, worship, and then finally, mission. I will only descend from mountaintop experiences when I see the urgency of the mission of Jesus. So these guys are up on a mountain. Moses and Elijah depart. It's just Jesus alone. And then look at what happens next in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, because you got to come down from the mountain... They run right into an urgent need. A great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him. 
Do you know any shattered people? People that are just so whipped and beat up by the devil. That's who lives at the bottom of the mountain. And if you care about them, you want them to see the glory too. And so Jesus sends his disciples down the mountain and they run right into a shattered boy. Verse 40 says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation. See, that's what's at the bottom of the mountain, a faithless and twisted generation. We want to escape it. We want to get up on a mountain. We get above all that, right? No, not if you understand the urgency of the need, the urgency of the mission of Jesus. We're to intersect with this faithless and twisted and shattered generation to show them the glory that is available in Jesus Christ. Verse 42 says, while he was coming, the demon threw him on the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of Jesus. On the other side of the mission of Jesus is the majesty of Jesus. And we live in this world that desperately needs to see the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ on the face of people who have met with him on the mountain. So here's the deal. In about 90 seconds, I'm going to say you are loved. You know what that means? Get out of here and go get those shattered people. Go live in that twisted and faithless generation and let's shine like Jesus. I want to invite you to stand together with me. Heads bowed, eyes closed. It's hard to be a disciple of Jesus. It's hard to go out of here and walk in the opposite direction that everybody else is walking. It's harder when you don't have a daily encounter with the glory of Jesus. But when you do, you see the mission, which leads you right back to a hunger for more revelation so that you can give more worship and be fueled for more mission. It's a cycle. Why don't you ask the Lord to open your eyes right now with heads bowed and eyes closed and give you a second. Say, Lord, thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you for your glorious self-disclosure in Jesus. You came to where I was. You've given me faith, the eyes of faith, to see and I want more for some of you it's it's brand new and it, it may seem a little scary you fit right in with Peter James and John it's like man I don't even know what I'm looking at I don't even know what the price is how I should respond what does worship look like it's as simple as listening and obeying Jesus, thank you for meeting with us today. and I pray that you would make this very practical, very real for every individual. For most of us here, we came bruised and beaten up and discouraged for living in a faithless and twisted generation. And God, I pray that you would heal us. pray that you would encourage us to be true worshipers take up their cross, deny themselves, follow you all the way to the cross. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week. We've always got elders and pastors down here at the front. If you need somebody to pray for, they would love to pray with you. If you're carrying a burden, they'd love to pray for you this morning. You're loved.